Yes. I'm really excited for next week. Uh, we're going to talk a bit about from, um, we're going to talk about great stuff. Set the tone for a new year. I love this. One of my favorite Sundays of the year. I say that I know about about 10 Sundays, but there are about 10 that I really love. The rest of them are all right. Uh, again, I would really encourage you, make sure you're here next week. Uh, and as Rick reminded you, on that night, we normally do heart once a month. Um, it's this evening of prayer, worship. It's really dark in here. Come kind of experience as you feel led. It's a great space for those of you who have a hard time focusing on Sunday morning. It feels really fast. You hate that it's so bright in here. You're kind of slightly vampiric. You just need to like have some dark space to just be still. That's what the space is normally for. And we are going to have a lot of that next Sunday. But a big focus will be in praying for the new year. So we're just asking that every partner leader would try to be there on next Sunday night, again, at 7 o'clock. Be here so you can be coming alongside. There's going to be some really structured places in the midst of the normal deal to pray for the new year. Um, I know we're extending announcements on forever, but there was uh, one other thing I wanted to quickly mention. Two of the things I wanted to quickly mention. Um, just for the after-school program, uh, meet. There's instructions. You can either write on a high card, love PVD, and we'll get a hold of you. But ideally, and there was a group of about 12 back in September, you remember who you were, who said you wanted to be involved in an after-school program. And because of kind of hiccups with the city and how slow they were moving with stuff, it wasn't until now that we could really get that rolling. So we'd love for you to meet Pastor Rick right up front after if you're interested in helping out and getting more information uh, on, the, on the after-school program. Wonderful. And then, uh, sorry, and lastly, just to re-clarify, <laughs> what's up, buddy? How you be? Um, love it. So uh, the partner day, team day, uh, Rick mentioned how great the last one was. It really was one of the more, these have been an experiment for our church to figure out what it means to really get folks actively involved. And so one thing has been helping having our partners be equipped and effective in how they're serving home groups and getting involved in various aspects of programming. So this isn't just a church that's led by like the leadership and vision of a few. And last, the last team day, for those of you who were there, it was like, I'm not just saying this to hype it up. I mean, it was across the board. People that have really struggled with really coming to team day. It was just a almost unanimous sense of like this, if we could do this kind of thing every time we get together. And I only mention that in that this has been a process. And I just want to thank the partners who have been patient with coming out and those that have been really faithful to coming this and helping make this time beneficial for the rest of the church. And so a reminder, there actually are no partners right now. There are no partners in our church. Every year we re-up. This isn't like one of those I was a member once and I'm still a member forever. Literally, we have no partners on the books. So coming to this team day, the stuff we're going to do Next week, if you're somehow not able to make that, um, uh, we'll kind of get a list going. These are for folks that have been partners in the past and want to re-up. So be there for Vision Sunday and be for there for that team day. And if you're new and you've been wanting to become a partner, again, partner is sort of like the nuclear family, the folks that have a real strong sense of shared ethics, DNA, vision, values, folks that are followers of Jesus who want to help be a part of leading this church forward. That's what a partner is. Um, we're going to have some classes coming up for all of you. So please, we need to make sure we have uh, enough folks to run a class. So let us know that you want to uh, attend a partner class and we will get that started as well. Great. So with that, um, I'm going to speak this week. Uh, we start a new series in a couple of weeks as we enter into the season of Lent. We're going to be going through the book of 1 John. And uh, next week, again, is Vision Sunday. So this week was one of these weeks that what were some of the things that every year in January we want to try to hit on? And we didn't do this actually last year. And one thing I have heard from a number of home group leaders, I've heard this from folks that are become, or who are new to following Jesus, is sort of what do we do with the scriptures? What does it mean to engage the, the, the Bible when I know very little about them? How do we, as, as, as those of us who are here and who are followers of Jesus, or in fact, those that aren't, the reason why we have shifted to these, they're called inductive studies, these studies that we now do in home groups, are, are for people that actually aren't followers of Jesus who can just come with no or very little knowledge and just ask questions 
and to begin to wrestle with the, the text to make sense of what's happening. But there's a bit of intimidation. I think sometimes we can see it as a chore instead of this life-giving thing. Or we can do this thing that I, I think of all the things that our community struggles with. I'll use this as my prop. This is appropriate. Is we kind of place ourselves um, above the text instead of under it. Now, there's temptations on both sides. We place ourselves under the text, and sometimes what can happen, uh, and what I mean is simply like where our authority lies, right? So what can begin to take place sometimes is we have Father, Son, and Holy Bible. For those of you who are familiar with Christian doctrine, that's not how it goes. That's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we elevate the Bible to something that it doesn't say about itself, and then the other reality I think is probably a bit more prevalent as we tend to put ourselves over it. Be wary and cautious in your own heart and in the heart of others. If your theology, if your understanding of the scriptures perfectly aligns with your political ideology, you might have a problem. If it aligns dead on with the things that you've already decided about the world or been swept up in a particular cultural moment, be cautious. Doesn't mean you're wrong. I would just say be cautious. Be cautious that all the stuff that makes you feel really uncomfortable, like when Jesus starts talking about hell and all this stuff, that you immediately go, yeah, yeah, there's probably some like, there's probably some other thing that I haven't read that like does away with that. And this one speaker that I know that I follow a podcast of, he's okay with not addressing those texts, so I should be okay too and move on. We could insert a whole lot of issues with that. There's a danger when we place ourselves above the scriptures. Now, an issue that often comes up before we dive into our text today, an issue that often comes up as well is, is one of authority. What does it mean that the Bible has authority? For those of you who've done any bit of, of reading, I speak to you of, this is a collection, there's Psalms in here. Ever read the book of Psalms? It's like the big one in the middle that if you open up, you'll likely hit that one. So the, the Psalms are confusing. You ever gotten to parts of the psalm and you're like, that's not right. Anyone know what psalm I'm talking about? Like psalms that are like, yeah, God, you're so good and your love endures forever and your glory and majesty as far as, and my enemies may their faces be ripped apart by jackals. That's in, well, not the faces part, but the enemies ripped apart by jackals. <laughs> I just like imagine it's faces. <laughs> One writer says 50% of the psalms are, are gospel songs, joy, and 50% of the psalms are blues. They're blues. They're doubt and questioning. Tim Keller talks about it's like the full range of human experience. This would have been Jesus' prayer book. So we might want to consider it be, have, making it ours. In fact, if you're looking for a resource, Tim Keller is a pastor out of New York City. He has a, a book that breaks up the Psalms into these short little devotionals. And you just, through the whole year, you just go through the Psalms. Because it hits a wide range of human experience. When you're angry, when you're frustrated, when you're full of doubt, when you're full of joy, when you're confused. And the psalmist and the writer hits on this. So you have books in the Bible that are written like that. You have Lamentations, which is a book basically about the God of the universe on trial. What is the deal? You have books that are, are much more math than they are poetry. And I say that only in the sense that they are like written in about systemic theology. Like this is how you should think about this. Here are some ways to believe this. And then much of the scripture embodies this poetic essence. Not just that it's actually poetry, though there is a lot of poetry in the Bible. A lot of it is speaking to a larger human need. And so there's a temptation sometimes to allegorize everything. And then there's a temptation to allegorize nothing. Engaging the scripture, as I use the poetry example, it often reminds me of, of this scene. If you want to cue this video up, this scene in one of my favorite, favorite movies of all time. Thank you. 
get the point. Words and ideas can actually change things. We don't read poetry because we're students. We read poetry because we are part of humanity. We read the powerful words that people have written. We might contribute a verse of our own. We step into it because it propels us like any good song to act on things we've been wrestling with. Maybe it inspires us to see the world a bit different. It shifts sometimes our center of gravity. Sometimes like last week hearing Matthew's poetry, it convicts us. It actually brings a sense of, 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 of change, of a prophetic voice that helps us re-see things. It invites us in. One writer says half of all poetry, understanding it is half of what you bring to it. Like understanding poetry is really half of what you've brought into the thing. Because poetry by its nature, for the most part, tends to stand slightly at a distance and welcome you in. Now again, this isn't a perfect analogy for scripture. But I think it helps. N.T. Wright, a famous, famous person, um, famous writer who I often quote often, scholar. Somebody who... This is a free anecdote, but I need to say this. He's inspired most of what has now developed into like very progressive Christianity. And there's a lot of really good things to, to link in with what's happening in that world. What's ironic is that he is largely the center of the most compelling ideas that much of uh, a community within the larger Christian world has latched onto, but then when it comes to things that they don't agree with, they jettison his scholarship. So, yeah, that's a different sermon, but I want to point out that because what happens is, this isn't about lifting up all things into right or any other writer, but what can happen again is we place ourselves over the text 
We love, we talked about this with fear. We love that God is love. But when we have to wrestle with what it is that we have a good and perfect and holy God that invites us to actually stand before him, things tend to shift a bit or we discard it and we find gymnastics to avoid what's there. All that came from just saying the word N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright draws the similarities between scripture and a Shakespearean play. And he says, what if we didn't have the rest of act five, if we found a play, a Shakespearean play? So if we stumbled upon, we're going through an old library and we stumble upon a play by Shakespeare and we are missing the last act. We only had the first four. Do you archive the play? Or would you call together Shakespearean scholars and ask them to immerse themselves in the acts and try to finish it. What would have happened? Right? It'd be a great experiment. It's a great setup for a film. We found this play and we have the first four acts. We've got background and we've got knowledge and we understand the characters and we see the trajectory of where this is going and how it was written and we're catching the ethos. So it's not just the math, it's the poetry of what's happening in the story and, and, and then a, a, a writer or a group of writers and historians are asked to, let's finish it. What would this look like? So many have adopted this way of looking at scripture into these five acts. You have creation, you were made in the image of God. It's this great egalitarian thing. This amazing man and female God created them. It's this powerful moment that actually uh, specifically uses other creation stories and subverts them tells the story of who we are. And it shifts to the, the fall. We hear about the reality of when we choose death over life. We get the story of Israel, these first people that were called to be a blessing to the world. Genesis 12, blessed to be a blessing. Jesus enters the scene. This is what all of the scriptures have been pointing to and waiting to a moment, a culmination of the ages where God would make clear his relationship with us and you have all that comes with the story of Jesus and then we're given just a piece of the church and its mission and then a picture of what the end looks like every tribe tongue and nation we get a glimpse of what all the scriptures have pointed to of God making everything right the cry that exists in every human heart the lion laying down with the lamb the restoration of all things everything where it's supposed to be and so we're given Acts 1 to 4 in the beginning of Act 5, and we're called to immerse ourselves in these first four acts to know the text well enough to continue the story, to step into the story. And so this is why, for those of us who come regularly on a Sunday morning, this is like the beginning of it. You're coming together with a group of people and going, I'm listening to somebody talk through the scriptures. That's why the first thing that we do, ironically, this wasn't the Sunday that we did this, we invite you to stand for the reading of the word. We begin a time of teaching around here is the text. Sometimes we're going through a book. Sometimes we're hitting main ideas that emerge throughout the course of scripture. We're highlighting a story or stories inside the life of Jesus. But you're coming and, and, and beginning to hear what does... What, does, what is the story that I'm a part of? The story that I find myself in? What do I believe about the way the world is? In fact, many people have borrowed from this story. We've talked at great lengths how many philosophers recently, for whatever reason, and these are not, most of them are not Christian philosophers and scholars, have pointed out how much we are indebted to the Judeo-Christian worldview. Human rights, this idea of loving your enemy, our modern version of ethics has even bled into eastern parts of the world where the Judeo-Christian story was not dominant. There's ways in which many of us have in our culture has pulled out pieces of the story, pulled out ideas from the story and left the actual story and narrative behind. And so this is why as followers of Jesus, those of you here who are, it's so important for us to ground ourselves in what has happened so we can understand what it means to participate and act out the rest of the play, to hear the cry 
of those that have gone before us, to understand the character and nature of God, to see how the first communities of Jesus put this into place. Exodus 6.2, if you have your Bibles with you. Exodus 6.2, I think this is on the screen maybe as well. Yes. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. This is in the very beginning of the scripture. He begins with, I'm the same God of history, and now I'm appearing to you. God said to Moses, I am the Lord, and I've appeared to others. 1 Corinthians 15, so this is at the other end of the scripture. This is right at the beginning of the blessing of of who the people of God are supposed to be. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, you see this. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. I want to remind you of what's been taught, the good news, this story of what God is up to in the world. By this gospel, you're saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you. Is a, what, I, what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12, and that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. It's a Jewish way of saying they did. Then he appeared to James, then all the, to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me. We're being reminded of our roots. Jesus appeared to all of these people. Paul has to remind this first church, he's writing to this church in Corinth, saying, I have to remind you of what's of first importance. That all of these people saw him. That the resurrection is this thing that happened. You can go and talk to some folks if you have some questions about what happened. It's a fairly bold claim. You can go and actually talk to people about what happened. This wasn't just a secret knowledge of the few, which you often find in religious rhetoric. It's, you could go talk to people. Hebrews 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times in various ways. This is not even the point of this passage, but I mention this because it's how he begins the book of Hebrews. And he's saying, you, the writer is saying, you have to understand this story. God has never stopped talking through the ages. To know God, we have to know what God is like. That we are part of this stream. We are part of this narrative. We believe our longings are grounded in a narrative of how the world actually is. I'm telling you this because so often we can um, begin to believe these like subtle, subtle counter narratives that just sort of feel good and then we attach a Christian worldview to it instead of allowing the text to shape us and to trust what the text says, which isn't just look, we've passed on the Bible to you. In fact, in most of these, there is no document that's being passed on. It's stories. These writers are saying, look, 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 this good news, this story is of what God has done. He's spoken before. He is speaking now, and he will speak again. That's why we're here. I have no vested interest in preserving some, like, Christian institution. My personal story is I've almost walked away from God. I, I like clearly, as clear as day that I know of, like only like through about three times. I've gone through such deep seasons of questioning and doubt. I've wrestled with social issues that I've come out on the sides that I didn't want to come out on. I was raised, often I say this and it comes off disingenuous because I was raised by a pastor. Uh, and any of you who have been a pastor's kid or been around pastor's kids, you know that's actually not a recipe for like believing in the institution and preserving like the thing. It's actually a recipe for the other, right? Amen? Anyone know any pastor's kids? Yeah, anyone ever been like, you know, cheated on by a pastor's kid? Been tempted to go like do coke by a pastor's kid? Anyone? <laughs> just, just saying, we, are, we do not have a good, the only man who could ever reach me, right? It's not, like this is not, we don't have a good reputation. We, I joke, my wife and I joke, 
maybe we should raise our daughter slightly fundamentalist so she'll rebel and then like meet us on the other side. Do you know what I mean? Like we're gonna kung fu it. Like, yes, you should totally, you know, and get really like rigid so she'll rebel a little bit and then come back to us. And be like, ha, it was a trick. See, we all do believe the same thing. Um, <laughs> thank you. Sociologically, it actually is a really good idea. I mentioned this not as some sort of like proof point, but for me, it's been fascinating to see, oh, yeah, 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 God spoke to me the other day. Oh, yeah, God is revealed in Scripture through some incredible people in this next season. We're actually seeing an explosion of the church in these, in all over the world. We're seeing some incredibly wise and rational and brilliant people give their life to Jesus recently. Like, it's a whole other thing that's been happening. Even as many who rebel against the brokenness and hypocrisy they've seen, it's incredible what God has been doing. God is still speaking is all I'm trying to say. A few concepts, some really big ideas I just take from looking at the beginnings of these, these books as I look at the intros of these other stories, which is sort of what I've just read you. God's reminding people of their past and their history. The Bible is real people at real places at real times. And we reject the idea that God is somewhere else and shows up on a whim. We need to embrace and engage that God is the God of history and has been involved. And what we learn when we look at the scriptures is that we're never the first people who've struggled with blank. We're never the first people who've struggled with depression. We're never the first people who've struggled with doubt. You are not unique in that you're wondering what on earth is going on or that you want to like binge so you can ignore your own reality like this is not new this is one of the aspects that's so powerful about being grounded in a story specifically one that we believe is true about the whole world we come from a long line of people who want to like give up and who want to like stand at the edge of the building and jump we come from a long line of people who have those voices in their head that they can't get out. We come from a long line of people who have wrestled with poverty, who have been hurt and beat down, who have had others do horrific things to them. The story that we find ourselves in, the reason why the Bible is authoritative is the story of what it looks like when God is acting in human history. The Bible itself as a canon is not the authority. What gives it authority is God. This is the authoritative narrative of God acting in human history. And what does it look like when God acts in human history? A quick pause. If you'd like to read more about this, there's an essay that we've printed that's, or sorry, it's in your bulletin, a link in your bulletin. It's just an essay called Why the Bible is Authoritative. And it's a really great resource. You can look at that later. We learn we're never the first who are wrestling with purpose. We come from thousands of years of people who have asked similar questions. If someone told you about Jesus, did someone tell them, and someone told that person, and someone told that person. You come from a tradition of people passing on the story of what it means to be alive, what it means to be woke, what it means to be, what it means, what it means to be most awake to what is most true about the world. So, I want to drill down into a few practical things. If Jesus was, if God is, what did Jesus do and how did he do it? What do we do and how do we do it? Jesus loved the scriptures. Jesus is spending most of his time not just making up new things, but actually quoting the ancient scriptures and helping make sense of them. That's why it's very difficult to understand most parts of the New Testament without understanding the old. So first, I want to look at information versus invitation. Jesus saw the scriptures of invitation to a relationship with God rather than just information about him. This is really important. Jesus sees the scriptures as an invitation to a connection with God much more than information just about God. 
Jesus saw a portal into the heart of God as a window to see God as he truly is. The challenge we have with all of this information in the scriptures is we can think that the primary goal of this Bible is to simply make us more literate biblically. And that is a a good step for us as a community. One of our big goals this year is toward biblical literacy, but it's not the point. The point is an invitation. John 5, 39. This is on the screen as well. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. It's possible to go through every level of study and still live in radical disobedience. It's possible to have such a handle on the things of God. I love my brothers and sisters who could school me and anyone else on doctrine. But you just press into them a little bit like, hey, are you you anxious? How are you doing with loving your wife? This could apply to any of us. We care sometimes so much about preserving a certain systemic way of understanding scripture that when we get to the commands that are often repeated like, hey, 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 look how I take care of the birds. I'll take care of you. Begin to live inside of that kind of rest. So often we get obsessed with information for those of us who are like, who wanted to say amen when I was like, make sure you place your life under the text. You're like, yes, the Bible. I think a shadow side that often exists, I'm stereotyping to folks that go, yes, as they, 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 they place information over the invitation that God has. We journey into the Bible to find God, not simply find out about God. Eugene Peterson says this, This is a long quote, so stay with me. Reading is an immense gift, but only if the words are assimilated, taken into the soul, eaten, chewed, gnawed, received, in unhurried delight. Words of men and women long dead or separated by miles and or years come off the page and enter our lives freshly and precisely, conveying the truth and beauty and goodness Words that God's spirit has used and uses to breathe life into our souls. Our access to reality deepens into past centuries, spread across continents. But this reading also carries with it subtle dangers. Passionate words of men and women spoken in ecstasy can end up flattened on the page and dissected with an impersonal eye. Wild words wrung out of excruciating suffering can be skinned and stuffed, mounted, and labeled as museum specimens. The danger in all reading is the words be twisted into propaganda or reduced to information, mere tools and data. We silence the living voice and reduce words to what we can use for convenience and profit. I'll post that later if you want to read that. Man! Is that so true? We either flatten the text like, oh, interesting, he died, great. We can even read Dr. King these days and flatten out all the really difficult prophetic bits. Yeah, he was all about love, man. Yeah, all the races, let's universal hug and embrace. And we walk away. There are moments, as Eugene Peterson saying, when we get swept up into a story. I get swept up into the larger narrative. I experience this when I read Lewis and Narnia. I experience this when I read Steinbeck. Even writers that want nothing to do with the way of Jesus. There's something about a storyteller that like pulls you in. I love a lot of postmodern writers. Have you ever read Dave Eggers? Anyone ever read Dave Eggers? He does this thing where he, 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 he like breaks the third wall. He like breaks the wall with the audience. I've never done this. It happens on SNL. Jimmy Fallon's like famous for it. Right, he's in like a sketch, and then all of a sudden he starts laughing, and he's not supposed to be laughing. You know what I'm talking about? Right, the audience loves this, but it's sort of like a cheap laugh. Like everyone's like doing their thing, and he's like, "Oh, that was so funny what you did," and everyone's like, "He's human," and it's really funny. And it's a great moment. So this is what Dave Eggers does in his writings, and I love this because it relates to scripture. It's so often for me where there are moments where, even though it's not exactly happening like this, where you get writers who are telling this story. 
And then they kind of shift to the audience that they're talking at. And these are the moments when the Spirit so often uses the Scripture, and they sort of grab you a little bit. They say, are you paying attention? They kind of break out of the narrative that's being told. There's a story about so-and-so, and then all of a sudden, you're, you're invited into pulling out, what does this mean for you? Jesus says this, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. The great men and women of history have gone to Scripture to be transformed. What does this say to us now? What do these stories mean for us? This an information versus invitation. We are invited into the story. Secondly, something I'd I'd love for you to consider is uh, these two words, performance versus presence. Jesus didn't use the scriptures as a moral code. He uses them so often to, this is kind of a clunky way to say this, but I didn't have a better way, to get God's presence activated amongst us. Like he uses this like, what spirit, what do you have for us? Uh, Let me hear share what I mean here. Matthew 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. This is Jesus talking to the religious people. When Jesus gets ticked off, it's always at the religious folks. It's interesting. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides. It's like, kind of like messes with our like, Jesus is like comfy, cuddly, bare character. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. God's heart is that we would know his heart, not just his laws. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me, John says in 14. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. It's not out of duty but love that we are called to enter into being faithful. It's so easy, right, to moralize everything. We do this with our diet. We do this with, like, any education We do this with discipline. We turn it into a set of morals of right and wrong instead of understanding the heart of the matter. I hope, I pray, my daughter wants to do right by me, not because of some fear of law that I've put in front of her, but because she loves me and trusts me. We say this often about the whole like narrative of Christianity, right? I am so deeply loved and cared for by the God of the universe that how could I not then step into that life? Versus I am so like unbelievably fearful of what God might do that I better get my act together because he will smite me at any moment. They should still, like one comes to the end in a really healthy way. It doesn't produce burned out activists. It doesn't produce hypocritical people with a chip on their shoulder it produces folks that are loving and passionate and ready to serve and to bless because they're just beggars telling other beggars where to find bread they come with a humility and passion some of my brothers and sisters who are passionate about social justice and I am with you but if you don't come if you come just from the vantage point of look Jesus was passionate about that not I am so loved and I am part of the problem you will be burned out and you will become without a doubt everything you hate eventually it may take decades but you'll get there history has seen it so many have written about it i've seen it in my short lifetime are we coming to the text from a place of humility and love not from a place of moralizing everything. I want to get healthy because I love my like, body or I pretend to. I want, I want to go to the gym. It's a good thing. I don't, when we moralize this stuff, it, it gets unhealthy and it actually we lose the energy and strength we have to do it. I already mentioned the next one, under, not over the text. We often don't approach the scripture with humility. We say things like, have you ever heard yourself say, it can't mean that? Be honest. Anyone ever said that? You've read something in the Bible. Maybe you were just doing one of those like, God, just speak to me today. Yeah. What did we get when I did that? 
Anything good? Jesus left that place, went to the vicinity of Tyre. Oh, yeah, perfect. The woman was a Greek born in a Syrian province. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. <laughs> what? No. No, no, that's not a good one. Different one. God, you, you were confused on that one. How often have we been like, that, that can't mean that? Like, what if we engaged it? What if we explored the text? What if we had some humility? I love science. Love it. A lot of people who are scientists in the room. That one that just whoops. I love reading things that are not like tied to the way of Jesus. Many things in this world should be received. They are good and wonderful things as people made in the image of God. I say all that as a preface to say I'm actually also really agnostic when it comes to much of it. I use that term in the sense of like, yeah, I believe it in so far as it will change. Uh, Chuck, who's a close clusterman, cluster, I always say his name, last name wrong. He's writing a book right now about what if we saw everything in the world right now from the vantage point of the future. It's a futile exercise, but it's really fascinating. It's what he's doing. He knows it's futile. He's saying, what if we wrote about all the stuff that we believe about the internet and radio waves and thought and patterns and traditional family values and not that and all these things. And, and how many times have we looked back 150 years and go, wow, we were so far off. How many times have we done that? A lot. So there's a part of me that's always a little bit agnostic, and I only say that insofar as how does this make sense within the scriptures, because we get caught into cultural moments and cultural tides, and we don't ask ourselves, what does it mean to be faithful to the way of Jesus here in this place? What does it mean to step into this? So the, the, the scriptures aren't a scientific textbook. They're not meant to help us make sense of like the literal origin of how we make sense of X, Y, or Z, separate sermon. But what it is, is to tell us who we are. What does it mean? How does our, our, our money, how does our sexuality, God cares about what we do with our genitals over and over in scripture, matters. I know it's a really awkward way to say that, but I just wanted to put it out there. It's just real. Like who we are, what human flourishing looks like, how we were hardwired. What does mercy and grace and forgiveness look like in the face of things that aren't practical? What does it mean to lay down our life? There's difficult things we have to wrestle with. One writer says this, we as Christians can disagree about how we are called to love our enemies. We can disagree with exactly what that looks like, right? There's a lot of things to try to make sense of. What we can't disagree on is that we're called to love our enemies. Do you know what this does here? It creates a starting point. And this is so often what the scriptures are powerful at doing. They create, this is where we start and then this is where we end. And we can wrestle with and we can make sense of all of this as we go. We can journey in a part of the community, listening to the Holy Spirit, studying the scriptures. But most of us don't even start there when it comes to how our worldview is being shaped. We have to place ourselves under the text. We have to be able to say things like, like yeah, I know it says it can't mean that, and so I'm going to leave room. The rabbis had this ancient prayer that they used to pray when they'd come upon a text that didn't make any sense to them. They'd say a prayer like, thank you, God, that we one day will like, have an understanding of this text. It was like a blessing. Like, I don't get this. This is really weird. This seems to fly in the face of this. I don't understand it. Okay, cool. There's a lot I do not understand or fully make sense of. And there was this prayer of offering this back up to God. Thank you, God, that you'll make this clear. And the reality is, is when all the Bible is is something in our head that we have to make sense of until we feel good enough about it to then go practice, it, it just won't happen. We are called to invitation. We're called to place ourselves under the text. And we're called um, to step into the things that we truly do know about the story and allow that love of God to shape us. I was going to go off and share a story with you, but uh, I'll, I'll pause for the sake of time. But I'll just say... I, I, there's something about being able to step into the text and really allow it to speak. There's this great story about Ananias and Sapphira. And the reason why I love the story is because it's just so strange. People who say they want to be a New Testament church. You ever heard a Christian say that? We want to be a New Testament church, just like the first church. Share all, share all our possessions. There are no needy among us. Loving and serving the least of these. It's amazing. Yeah, New Testament church. Check out the end of... Acts 4 into the beginning of Acts 5. God's like smiting people. 
there's like a lot of like really deep brokenness that's going on in the community. I share that because I think like this would be a great example. And maybe if anyone has time after the script service, I'll like sit down here and walk through it. It's this powerful story about generosity, about integrity. And too often we write these stories off because that seems to not make sense and we fail to get to the heart of what the story is about. I would love to have time to get into that, but I'm not going to. Hebrews 4, 12. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Scriptures are powerful. They wake us up. Richard Foster says, Regarding the Bible, then, perhaps the most basic question is, shall we control the Bible? That is, try to make it come out right? Or shall we simply seek to release its life into our lives and into our world? Shall we try to tilt it this way or that? Or shall we give it complete freedom to tilt us as it will? According to Jesus, the scriptures are an invitation their promises, truth, and a portal to encounter the God of the universe, to encounter the way of freedom, to encounter the life of the ages. And we are called then to consume them, to claim them, to memorize them, to pray them, to discuss them, to study them, to debate them, to wrestle with them, to say them, to believe them, to share them. All of these things. But it has to be rooted in do we know them? Colossians 3.16 Let the message of Jesus dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, through hymns, songs of the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your heart. So a few real practical things. Four words. Read, think, Pray and live. I couldn't fit them into some cute acronym. First, read. Most of us set ourselves up to intake the information that we want. Most of you are organized just enough. You set up your life to intake the info that you want. How many of you have Twitter? Twitter? Anyone? People are like, what? Twitter? All right, that is a cure. Unless you're, like, using it wrong. <laughs> You, that was a really harsh thing to say. Unless you're just like trying to grab friends for the sake of it, like you, you, you set it up in such a way, right, that you just follow who you want to follow. I want to make sure I get that like update from, this, from CNN. I'm really honestly interested, even though I'm a little bit ashamed to know what Kim Kardashian's doing. Like I follow, you know, like this homemaker blog because I love like interior design. I you know, you follow, like, you, I follow this theologian because they say really interesting and edgy things. I follow this guy because he's really funny. Whatever it is, right? You curate your feed. That's great. So we do this with our life in general. We set ourselves up to intake the information that we want. The way info tends to come in is flattened and personalized. And so we have to have, like, a humility to step out. Even, like, with Twitter, it's like, oh, I follow, like, a couple of scripture things, and they can be good reminders, or they can be good triggers to do other kinds of study. But they have to be that, because of all the information that comes in so flattened, and I just mean that, and, like, oh, my gosh, there was an earthquake this morning, a 7.1 earthquake in Alaska. Did you know that? Yeah. And then there's another bombing that took place. And then this celebrity did this thing to somebody else. I was just like looking really quick at my feet. It's like, it all comes in like this and we get inundated. And at what, very few times does any of it become meaningful, right? That's why we can kind of brush off great atrocities, right? We're just like, oh, whatever. And it's also why we can then like dehumanize celebrities. I can't believe that person would say that. Like you don't even know them, right? This happens. We, all our information just gets flattened. Do we have time and rhythms and spaces to stop and break out of our regular rhythms and routines and simply read? There's, again, a bunch of resources in your bullets and apps that you can do. ESV is a great devotional app. There's a ton, uh, Sky Jathani, this app called With, if you look that up in the app store. There's a bunch of different things that can sometimes be helpful. Also, just picking up your Bible. If you're new to the Bible, start in John and don't get um, confused by the first part that's all just a genealogy and just begin to read the words of Jesus. 
for me, uh, I ride my bike most of the year. And so I, uh, as a practice, whenever I'm riding my bike I'm, or taking a walk on my Sabbath, I'm always listening to the Bible. It's amazing as I'm walking down Broadway and I'm listening to the words of Jesus, how things just come alive. Think. You need to think deeply. You need to learn the art of reading. And not just the art of reading for information. There's some great commentaries out there to read, things that help us unpack what's going on. But um, this one writer says this about reading in general, letting a very slowly melting lozenge melt imperceptibly in your mouth. Like just letting the words soak in. Like allowing these things, not just to think in terms of information, though that's key, but like Psalm 23, one of the most said psalms ever. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You've heard this quoted a million times. He restores my soul. Some of you just stop, stop. Like, don't read anymore. I know you've got to get through Psalm 23 because you've got to get the, like, the bus. You've got to get to work. Stop. God, if you do that, would you, would you do that? Like, my soul was in death. I didn't even realize it needed to be restored. Like, ah, the Lord's my shepherd, I shouldn't want. There's so many things I want. I feel pulled apart. I am not grateful and at rest at all. Stop. To read, to think. Don't hurry. To pray. What does this mean for me today? Just to ask that question. Never stop reading in, until your heart is stirred, until I've been connected with the story. And then live, James 1, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Do it, step into it. You can read all about love, but when you step into a relationship, when you forgive and find yourself deeply connected again to that family member who you thought you didn't love anymore, when you get married, when you find yourself just like stirred, even to someone's story you may not even know, we experience these moments. When we step into love, we recognize there is a difference between reading about love reciting sonnets about love, understanding the psychological realities of what's happening with the neurons in your brain when you fall in love. Fascinating, it's interesting, it can inform you, but it is fundamentally different than walking in and practicing the way of love. It is a different kind of knowing. There is knowing, and then there is knowing. And the scriptures, ultimately, it, right thinking should always be leading to right living. I close with this because I'm going long and the keyboard came on. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> Exodus. Let me end with this. First Corinthians 15. Verse 58, therefore in light of all of this, therefore in light of all of this, so he says, therefore my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that you labor, that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. It's like when you're, when you're doing about the right thing, you don't have to worry about the consequences. That's what I love about following Jesus. I don't have to worry about the consequences of following Jesus. Like the, it's the, when the right thing is the right thing. You, you don't have to worry that you're laboring in vain, that your life is wasted. Now about your collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. It is for the poor. And he goes on, set aside. He says, take an offering for the poor. That's what the resurrection looks like when it's on display. He's telling them a story. This isn't like an invitation to giving here. This is like there's a story being told and the implications of what God has done. One of them means there shouldn't be any needy among you. Hebrews 1, in the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. God's been speaking and now he's doing something new. The next five chapters then are about who Jesus is. 
then it ends with this. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Jesus and be taken forward to maturity. Now it's time to go forward. The phrase that keeps coming to my mind, and this will lead perfectly into next week's Vision Sunday, is it's our turn. This is what the scriptures are inviting us into. It's our turn. It's our time. What does it look like to be faithful to the way of Jesus, to be people that are submitted to the word and open to the leading of the spirit? Who are submitted to the word and open to the leading of the spirit, who are taking the story of Jesus further. We have to embrace the Bible as the wild, uncensored, passionate account it is of people experiencing the living God. And so whether we are reading the Bible for the first time or standing in a field in Israel next to a historian, an archaeologist, and a scholar, the Bible meets us where we are at. That's what truth does. That's what truth does. It meets us where we are at. Pray with me. God, I pray that we would embrace the Bible as the wild, uncensored, passionate account that it is of real people at real times experiencing you. I pray that as we come to the table this this morning, you would help us. Lord, help us make sense of the next step for us. To step into the story May our love for you come from your love for us. And may that propel us to be people of the word. In your name we pray, amen. As we come to the table, this is a practice for those of you who are new to the way of Jesus. Uh, We do this almost every week. We come and we take the bread We dip it in the cup as a reminder of Christ's body, the bread, broken, open, and his blood, the wine, poured out. We're told for the forgiveness of sins. In the larger story, this is for the healing of the world. This is, we see our story come into view. Paul speaks of the past rushing into the present and the future rushing back into the present. There's a moment where we remember what Christ did and we remember what he's doing. And so may our prayer as we stand in line, as we take the bread and the cup, may we remember the God who loves us, the God who has forgiven us, the God who has set us free, and the God who has laid his story out for us to join and participate in. As we often say as a part of our liturgy, as Christ broke himself open and poured himself out for the healing of the world. So we, the church, which Paul calls the body of Christ, are invited into the story to, like Jesus, break ourselves open and pour ourselves out for the healing of the world. So if you're here, you're a follower of Jesus, or maybe you're here and you're like, I would love to participate in this story. I've sat over the text for so long. I, 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 maybe for you, hearing that people have doubted and questioned and wrestled with the scripture for decades and centuries actually brought peace to your heart. Like doubt and faith are not opposites. They are dance partners. It means your faith is real. If you're doubting, if you're questioning, if you're wrestling with the next thing, it's a good thing. And so maybe an invitation for you today is come for the first time take communion and go and be prayed for and say, I want to follow Jesus. I'd like to say yes to this story. I want to trust this story. So, would you, as you feel led this morning, come forward up the middle, take the bread, dip it in the cup. And if you'd like to be prayed for, make sure you're in this aisle so you can come over here and and receive prayer this morning. Lord, For those um, who you are calling to repentance right now, may they know the freedom and love and joy that you have for them. Those that are sitting here going, ah, 
I don't know if I can, like, be okay with submitting to who you are. May this moment be one of freedom, not of guilt. For those this morning who would say yes to Jesus for the first time, Lord, the boldness to sort of step into line and say, yeah, 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 I'm in. May you seal this moment in a powerful way. For those of us just need to be, we're just feeling that, that nudge in a new year that I need some better rhythms and better disciplines and better habits that I might know the story and live faithfully into the next act. God, would you just, even as people are standing in line, just plant a seed of what that looks like. In your name we pray.